Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. Turkey marked its 100th year as a republic on October 29th, and Turks have been debating the country's evolution and how it measures up to the vision of the deeply secular Kemal Ataturk. While celebrations focused on the previous 100 years, it is also clear that President Erdogan's ambition is to usher in another century forged more in his own image. Ryan Gingeris, a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School and an expert on Turkish Balkan and Middle East history, joins me to discuss this centenary and its broader implications both within and outside Turkey. Ryan, great having you back on The Greek Current. Always great to be here with you. Ryan, 100 years from its founding, where is this vision the secular editor laid out, especially considering the centenary finds Erdogan, an Islamist leader seen by many as the antithesis of Ataturk at the helm? What I would say is that I think you have to first begin with the fact that what Ataturk's actual vision was is in many ways still up for debate, at least in many quarters in Turkey. I think it's helpful to first see the present in some ways as being in somewhat in continuity with the past. But one should consider that, you know, when Ataturk took the helm of the Turkish Republic 100 years ago, Turkey was a really different place. It was a lot poorer. It was devastated by conflict. Its position in the world was, let's just say, diminished by virtue of the legacies of the Ottoman Empire and the ways in which many people saw the Ottoman Empire. I mean, even really fundamental things like, you know, demographically, the country was in really poor shape and large sections of the countryside that were virtually depopulated. I mean, there were endemic levels of poverty. And one of the things that Ataturk dedicated himself to was, I mean, kind of put it really bluntly, was material growth, making Turkey stronger, economically more vibrant, and a state that was worthy of international recognition. And so Lots of people today in Turkey, even among, let's say, Erdogan's fiercest critics, would probably say that Ataturk and Erdogan are along the same trajectory in terms of dedicating themselves to making Turkey bigger, stronger, again, sort of more worthy as a state of international recognition and renown. You know, the other aspect of this, too, is the issue of nation building, in that I think we have to consider that Ataturk, first and foremost, is seen as a kind of father of the nation. And this is received in quite literal terms. Ataturk defined singularly what it meant to be Turkish. Now, certainly his definition drew upon past precedents, but he engendered a process by which really large numbers of people in Turkey came to see themselves as Turkish in quite concrete ways. And Erdogan, again, is a part of this continuum. And I think in some ways he's a beneficiary of this continuum. And a great deal of his worldview actually draws quite consciously from the Kamalist tradition, even though it's often couched, as you put it, in a kind of Islamist confection. Now, you did use the most important and the most operative word here, which is the secular tradition of Ataturk. And I think really briefly at least among scholars, there is some degree of debate or at least some degree of nuance in which people talk about the secularization of Turkey under Ataturk and what it means today. You know, I think from the outside looking in, there is a big difference between Erdogan's Turkey and that of Ataturk's, or at least the one that Ataturk sought to build. Ataturk did not necessarily draw upon Islam as a kind of moral point of reference or let's just say as a kind of ideological point of reference. In fact, he 
had a rather low opinion of those who drew upon Islam as a kind of ideological compass. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that he banished Islam from the public square or sought to somehow minimize its role in society. It's actually just the opposite. Among his reforms was to bring Islam as a religion, but more importantly, as an institution under the control of the Turkish state. You know, and the embodiment of this is the so-called Diyanet, this governmental body that oversees not just the administration of members of the Sunni clergy, but also helps steer and editorialize the practice of Islam in day-to-day life. Now, again, Erdogan is a direct beneficiary of this. And in the ways in which he has now, I think, changed fundamentally aspects of the country's political culture and even its social culture is directly tied to this tradition. So in many ways, you could say, you know, from a very basic standpoint, yeah, the two characters are quite different. They are bookends of two very different periods of history, but both Erdogan and and Ataturk are linked in important ways. It's no secret that Erdogan's ambition is to be the most impactful leader of Turkey. After two decades leading the country, has he fulfilled this dream of eclipsing Ataturk? You know what I would say is that we don't know if what Erdogan really wants is to eclipse Ataturk. Even perhaps even more difficult to say is whether he even thinks it's possible. What I would say is that if we can attribute anything to Erdogan, he has successfully modified Ataturk in important ways, in terms of, to some degree, his presence in everyday political life in Turkey. You can't get rid of Ataturk. Get rid of Ataturk, you basically get rid of the Republic. And to do that, in some ways, for Erdogan, would be incredibly self-undermining. It would, you know, remove a real fig leaf from whatever his ideological inclinations are. What I think he's done relatively effectively is he's been able to integrate aspects of the Ataturk mythos into a vision of Turkey that he, in many ways, has helped create. And, you know, what I mean by that is that Ataturk, as a historical figure, and even as a cultural figure, is a relatively malleable character, okay? First and foremost, Ataturk is the quite literal embodiment of the father figure in Turkey, the kind of the embodiment of the state, kind of leader, nurturer of the nation. And Erdogan has very successfully, you know, played to that kind of role within state and society. Not only that, I mean, there are aspects of Ataturk's, you know, his career, his overall experiences that at face value may seem somewhat antithetical to Erdogan, but actually Erdogan has been very successful to mirror himself or attempt to mirror himself in Ataturk's image. Ataturk won a war against the most powerful states in the world at the time in the early 20th century, those states being Britain and France. And that at the height of his power in the 1920s, during the so-called Turkish War of Independence or the the Turco-Greek War of 1919 to 1922, he was celebrated not only in Turkey, but internationally as a liberator and as an opponent to Western imperialism. Now, I mean, if you follow Turkey at all closely these days, Erdogan very much placates this kind of role too. And so in this respect and in other respects, we see Erdogan wanting to, at the very least, draw continuity between himself and Ataturk and perhaps move parallel to him as that kind of figure. And last but not least, I should say that, you know, 
Erdogan, as I mentioned before, sees himself as something of a, a builder, right? He's somebody who has continued the process of making Turkey strong, making Turkey great, what have you. And he's quite convincibly done that. He's made Turkey a much stronger, at least in material terms, a stronger place. And so therefore, he's not eclipsed Ataturk by any means, but I think we could say rather successfully he's pulled level or just level to him. I want to bring us to the weekend's celebrations, where we saw Erdogan lead a massive pro-Hamas rally, and he lambasted Israel and the U.S. during his speech. Does this centenary find Turkey on a path of no return away from the West? You know, the short answer is it depends how critical you want to be. There's no denying that the Turkey today is a very different one from, let's say, 130 or 40 years ago, where there really wasn't any general debate over the question of whether or not Turkey was going in a separate direction from the West. It wasn't a relevant question. There was nothing in the international arena or there was nothing evident in the politics of, at least superficially, the politics of Turkey that would beg that question. Now, you know, when we look closer, right, and we really reflect on it, especially as we kind of peel back the layers of, let's say, things like the correspondence or the interactions between, you know, Western leaders and, and Turkish leaders or, you know, other kind of evidence of bilateral relations, there were certainly tensions. And there were certainly very different visions about the way the world works and the nature of the relationship between Turkey and the Western institutions. Now, you know, what I would say is that there are now more than ever reasons to see the past in continuity with, I think, the, the sort of suspicions that you voice. That you know, there has been a break, but this break in some ways was building over a long period of time. You know, consider for a moment, if we're going to even go back to the beginning, we rewind it all the way back to the time in which Ataturk is alive, he's president, and he presides over a really young Turkish Republic. Ataturk was, especially towards the end of his life, rather suspicious of becoming too intermeshed into the alliances of Great Britain and France, or even those of the Soviet Union or what becomes the Axis powers. There was a real sense in Turkey that becoming too enmeshed in the West was dangerous, right? It didn't quite have the ideological spin that Erdogan would, would give it today, but there is that kind of hesitancy. Now, you know, if we kind of fast forward to the present, among the most vociferous, the most strident critics of Western foreign policy and Western institutions. Many of them are actually Kamalists. Many of them are people who would actually would look to Mustafa Kemal as a point of reference for this kind of discomfort or even outright animosity. And so, you know, in some ways to answer your question really quite simply, is it a point of no return? I'm not entirely sure, but if we look at the historical trajectory in general, you know, there is a long tail that, you know, precedes us to the present that points towards an ever-widening gulf. Ryan, at this weekend's rally, Erdogan also made a reference to the quote-unquote borders of our heart and former Ottoman dominions in the wider region, including Jerusalem here. How should we read into this fixation on the Ottoman past when we talk about this centenary? I think the best way to read it is along a gradient. Okay, I think fundamentally allusions to the Ottoman past in Turkish culture today is, you know, at its most base level, its most conservative level, is an allusion to past greatness. 
And that past greatness, it serves as an inspiration for, you know, what is today and what is possible tomorrow, right? That turkey was at one point big. Turkey was one point internationally influential. And that turkey has a role to play in and beyond its borders. Now, I have to say that this affection for the past, again, at its most base level, is fed by a kind of fetishization of the past. And I think more than anything, I think you know, listeners have to appreciate the fact that the past is a really foreign country for most Turks, right? You know, the language of people's grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents in Turkey is not one that they can read for themselves, right? Ottoman Turkish, not to get too in the weeds, but Ottoman Turkish is a language that is fundamentally different from the, the Turkish that is spoken and written today. So for most people, the past is something that they are taught, they learn about in school or through TV. It's not necessarily something that they can explore for themselves. They don't necessarily have a tangible grasp of it. So there's something really kind of exotic about it. There's something sort of special about it, but it's something that goes through the lens or through a kind of sieve that is oftentimes really quite ideologically loaded or at least sort of steered by certain ideological inclinations. And so, you know, when we talk about the affection for the Ottoman past, especially as Erdogan demonstrates it, this is not necessarily through his personal reading of the past. It's through really the interpretations of others. And here, ideology becomes really important. And this is where the gradient gets more complicated. You know, at the far end of the spectrum, you have people who look at the Ottoman past, not just simply as kind of an inspiration for things that are bigger and better or more possible for Turkey. It's taken quite literally. It's taken literally as a model for what Turkey could physically look like, right? And this is, again, you know, to your illusion about the, you know, what Erdogan has often referred to also as the spiritual borders of Turkey. That is those lands that used to be a part of the Ottoman Empire. But it's a very pick and choose sort of map or mental map of what this hypothetical Turkey could be. And it's very much, you know, depending upon one's ideological inclinations. And so if we're to sort of ask ourselves, well, what does this past mean for the present and the future? Well, it's going to still be very much with us going forward. Again, at the very base level, because it is something that is energizing. But also, and I think this is where you hear it in Erdogan's speech, and this is where you see it in other elements of quarter it most certainly serves as a basis for irredentism. It most certainly serves as a basis for revanchism in Turkish foreign policy. Wrapping up, Ryan, the two-decade rule of President Erdogan has obviously, as we've laid out, transformed Turkey. What should be on the minds of those looking at the coming years and decades, particularly when it comes to Turkey's neighbors and allies? I'm going to try to paint it in the most general terms I can, because I think that's the best we're going to do today. I think the thing to most appreciate is that Turkey is a young country and the vast, you know, I wouldn't say the vast majority of people, but a really large segment of the population in Turkey today does not remember a Turkey before Erdogan. And so how they see the world is very much a product of his reign and of the ideas that he's kind of brought forth and really given life. And I think among them is the idea that the trajectory continues to point upwards. Turkey will continue to get bigger, better, more powerful, more influential, more ambitious, um, and more capable in its role internationally. And so I think this force continues to push the Overton window 
of possibilities in the greater Middle East. I think what we've seen over time in, in a relatively actually short period of time is Turkey testing its ability to shape the region according to its own designs. The other thing I think to bear in mind, I think that's energizing Turkey now, and I think it was most certainly on display over the weekend, is that it is also fundamentally driven by a belief of Western decline. And I think that the perception that the traditional powers that be in Turkey's immediate vicinity, the perception that these powers are growing weaker, that they are exercising far less direct influence over the region, or at least being less effectual in their behavior, this is not just inspiring, but this is also something that is seen as opportunity. And so I think if we're going to look at the present, we look at the future, I think and this is perhaps a whole separate tangent we could go into the continued limitations of Turkey as a state, you know, as both a regional actor and international actor, despite certain limitations, there will continue to be this overarching force that will compel Turkish leaders, whether it's Erdogan or even his successors, to look at opportunities to grow Turkey into more of a hegemonic force in the region and, and beyond it. Brian, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me again. In other news, Cyprus offered more detail Wednesday on its initiative to create a sea corridor for the steady flow of humanitarian assistance from Cyprus to Gaza, saying that ships would sail directly to the enclave where UN personnel would receive the aid for eventual distribution. Nicosia said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saw the initiative in a positive light during a long phone conversation Tuesday evening with Cypriot President Nikos Christodoulidis. Cyprus is still sketching out with fellow EU member countries and Arab states the logistical details of its plan. Finally, Prime Minister Mitsotakis on Wednesday met with Syriza leader Stefanos Kasselakis, marking their first encounter since Kasselakis assumed leadership of the leftist opposition party. Following the meeting, Maximos Manchin issued a statement indicating that the Prime Minister had provided Kasselakis with an overview of Greece's positions concerning developments in the Middle East, discussions at the European Council level, the progress of the Greek economy, the prospects following the country's credit rating upgrade, and the government's reform initiatives. In the meantime, an opinion poll conducted by Pulse shows that ruling new democracy enjoys an 18.5 lead over main opposition Syriza. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.